Hello, I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. More children and teenagers are expressing discomfort with their assigned sex at birth or their assumed gender identity. Physicians play a unique role in working with trans teenagers and their families. Dr. Jacques Ambrose and Dr. M. Brett Cooper discuss common misconceptions about this patient population, as well as how physicians can be a resource for trans teenagers and their families. Let's join their conversation. I'm kind of curious if, do do you, do you typically have, um, like, approaches that differ based on the person's age or developmental stage? Um, Yeah, so I think, you know, being an adolescent physician, I don't see patients under the age of 10. And so you do hit on an important point, though. And so I can speak on it as just a pediatrician by training. But um, one thing to remember for general pediatricians or family physicians, folks who see these young people, is that what the research and what we know about gender identity formation for all human beings, regardless of whether you identify as LGBTQ or not, is that young people really do know their gender by about age four. And so the... um, the, the phrase that's often taught for people who take care of young children is that pay attention when that person's stated gender identity is consistent, meaning they use the same gender identity over and over. It's persistent across, you know, months, years, and they're insistent about it. And so it's not just like, oh, you know, hey, mom, I wish I was a boy or I want to be a boy today. It's the, that young, you know, female assigned at birth who says, mom, I am a boy or mom, I'm like my brother, you know, I'm a boy too. And they keep saying that over and over and over again. Those are the folks that likely, but not always will go on to really have a very firm gender diverse identity, but it's also important for young people or for physicians to realize that it is normal for young children to also explore gender. And so I always use this example that one of my nurses, when I was a fellow, she has a, um, a son who I think just turned six, um, who when I was working with her, he was around three, two to three. And so he has an older sister and I would see pictures and she would talk about all the time. There would be pictures where he was dressed up like as a knight slaying dragons. And then in the same day, not even a couple hours later, was dressed up like a princess and waving his sister's like princess fairy wand running around the house. And so many parents naturally are like, oh my God, what do I do with this? And I think it's for the the general practitioners who take care of these uh, children I think the the most important thing you can say to those families is do nothing, just let them be. And things will sort themselves out as they are meant to be over time. Um, and that allows that young person to do what they're going to do, explore who they are. Um, but I think what is really harmful to do is to then say to that young person, no, get out of that princess dress. That is not what boys do. 
because it's teaching them that who they are is shameful or a bad thing. And then over the time, over the years, your child will be who they are. And so if they go on to be a gender diverse person whose gender does not align with their sex assigned at birth. Okay. If you know, that young person that I'm talking about, who's now six over the last several years, cause I still follow her on Facebook. He has transitioned to being a very, what we will call stereotypical boy identity. And that was just his exploration phase for him. And he just wanted to be cool like his sister in her dresses and stuff. But he has a very male identity right now. And so the universe has sorted itself out as to who he is. And that's fine. So I think that's the big key is for it is developmentally appropriate. And that's the lens we have to take with children and young adults is it's got to be put into perspective of where they are developmentally. When we kind of think through medical options. Um, one of the kind of, the, there's testosterone and estrogen based on the gender identity that you are um, aligned with or you um, identify with. Um, and then there's also um, what are the technical term for them in the medical community is GNRH agonists, but in the, the trans world, we call them puberty blockers. Um, because that's essentially what they are used for in cisgender people is for um, young children who go into puberty, like let's say at age five, when they clearly should not be going into puberty. And so we use those medicines to kind of suppress um, the beginning of puberty. So I think some of the big misconceptions that I hear, and this is especially true amongst many fervently anti-LGBTQ people, is that someone who's 13 does not know who they are and does not know what they want out of their life. Um, and that is coming from a purely developmental approach to human beings. Um, but as an adolescent physician, I actually argue the opposite that yes, they may not know what their life is going to look like at 50, but as a cisgender person, I also did not know what my life is going to look like now at 35 when I was 15. And so, um, but I knew who I was as a person, you know, that at that age, I knew I was straight or excuse me, uh, gay. And I knew I was a cisgender person. And so I think we have to give some credit to our young people that they know who they are. Now, the approach to using both testosterone and estrogen, where some of this debate comes about is that over time, some effects of those medications can be permanent, meaning, um, you know, if we start testosterone, for example, it will eventually cause body and facial hair growth where it may not have existed before. And if you stop testosterone, those hair follicles will still look like they have hair there. They may not just grow as fast as they had if you were actively giving yourself testosterone. Um, the voice can get deeper with testosterone. And so if you stop testosterone, wherever that voice drops to it, by that point in time, it's not going to go back. And so that's where a lot of people kind of say that they're, they're going to sound the alarm about this is that I'm giving patients medications that cause irreversible changes when they may not know who they are. My argument to that is that clinicians who do work like myself spend a 
should spend a diligent amount of time getting to know that young person that they're going to be giving these medications to. And so, you know, if somebody just were to like call my office up and be like, hey, I want to start testosterone. And I talk to them and they're like, yeah, I started identifying as male yesterday. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And so it really is not meant to be kind of being the gatekeeper of hormones, but it's saying just like if I was going to be starting chemo for somebody, you wouldn't just walk in and be like, yeah, I want to get chemo if you don't have cancer. Hopefully somebody is like, let's talk about what are you thinking? Um, and so hormones should be used as part of a transition process in folks who it is appropriate to do those for. I think it should be the approach to doing that. I find that a lot of a lot of pediatric patients in general, they don't necessarily exist as in a vacuum. They exist within a structure, whatever that structure may be. It could be um, a coop school setting. It could be a family unit. It could be a, a friend group, um, but they always exist in a structure. And what I find is like as folks are transitioning and there's, there's um, inherently some disruption in that structure, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how how you kind of navigate that structural change with them. Like how 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 do you typically approach families? How do you typically approach um, folks that the patient themselves have identified as like I don't know how to bring them in, or you know, like worst case scenario that these structures are now actively opposing their changes. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. Super spicy. Yeah, so that's actually, yeah, that's a great, um, you know, that is the dilemma of pediatrics is that we have a patient, but we also have a family and whatever that family looks like, whether it's grandparents, biological parents, foster parents, et cetera. Um, and so the, the way that we kind of, I would talk about this, like if I do presentations or talk with some of my pediatric colleagues, um, and then also how we teach our residents when they rotate through with us is in your office, that should be a safe space for the patient. And so it may be um, that, um, you know, the, the patient that I just gave you an example of um, who had identified as lesbian and then now may have a non-binary identity. I ask them, first of all, what do you want me to do with your parents? So I think you have to respect the patient's preferences with regard to their parents or family. And so they may want you to call them one thing or use different pronouns with them, but they do not want you to do that with their parents because maybe they haven't told their parents yet. So I think that's the very first step is getting the boundaries from your patient of what that safe space looks like for them. Um, and then if they are willing to do that with parents, um, you know, like with this patient the other day, I use their, um, preferred name and their pronouns with their mother 
even if mom refuses to use them back with me. And so I make my office a safe space. And if mom, you know, says you can't call her that, I am very insistent back to the mom that I validate who your child is. And so in this office, they are going to be called this, or I'm going to use these pronouns with your child. But I think as best you can, know what the boundaries your patient has are so that you don't inadvertently out them to their family if they're not out. And then once you know those boundaries, make sure that when you have interactions with the family, you validate that person's identity and their pronouns that they use. Oftentimes, it is really, really, really hard for families to kind of juxtapose the, the two identities that are before them. And I think one, one thing that I, I would love for physicians to acknowledge and validate more is the parents themselves, like whoever is in the, the family unit, the parents themselves are also going through a change. Um, and there's, there's part of a grieving process that comes with that. Um, like in, in, in whatever memories and associations that they themselves have had with that individual, it's now being viewed in a different lens and they themselves have to grieve that. I mean, as, as much as we, we wish things could be different, society and the world right now are still not necessarily very accepting of um, LGBTQ individuals or people who are not fitting in the traditional heteronormative boxes. And I think, I think it's, it, that, that's a space that I, I, I commiserate with parents a lot is like you, you want what's best for your child. And it is very difficult to see your child being in a space or, or entering into a space that is going to cause a lot of problems for them. And it's, it's really painful to see that because you want to protect your children from whatever hardship and harm um, come their way. And at the same time, guide them in that process that like, if you try to prevent them from going into that space that they so desperately, like you said, persistently, insistently, and consistently wanting to go into your you're hurting them. Like you're, you're kind of creating the same harm that you're trying to prevent. And I find that that dyadic relationship is, is often really hard um, for parents to, to navigate. And we haven't even touched on like any of the, the cultural in, in infusion of like there are certain cultures where it's just, it is not just the family you know, that, 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 that struggle with, but the whole community um, that they're, their, their social standing and their social role in the community is now being subverted. So it's more than just the relationship between the individual and the parents, but also now the parents' relationship with their whole social structure are being subverted. So I think there's a lot of like shame and fear that I'm really glad that we're, we're kind of talking openly because I think it's exactly it that, that people need is to bring that out into the open and acknowledge. Yeah, and I think I also, you know, a lot of times when I talk with parents who are at least supportive enough that they brought them in to see me, especially around the gender piece, not so much the sexuality piece, but more so the gender piece, um, I use that word grief 
with them. Um, that in a lot of times my, and I actually will, um, you know, as much as I'm an ally of my patients, I think I also need to set realistic expectations for them. And so I often use um, a couple analogies for the patients. So for my adolescents, I tell them like, yes, your mom and dad may not always use your correct pronoun 100% of the time, but are they making an effort to do it? Or is it coming off like, whatever, I don't care. And what they have to realize is that they're on their on their journey for their gender identity. They are light years ahead of their parents. And you have to give their parent or their grandma or whoever it is some time to walk that journey with you and catch up. And as long as they're making an effort to do that, that's what you need to ask of them. And also for the parents, I do use that word grief. And I tell them, you know what? When there's a lot of emotion in our culture wrapped around expectations when a child is born, even when they're like an hour old, you know, let's say it's, um, a female assigned at birth, those some those parents may be like, you know what, I'm looking forward now to walking my daughter down the aisle one day, or we're going to do whatever it is. And, you know, I had a parent here and, you know, as you probably know, football and in particular high school football is the end all be all for many small towns in Texas, but outside of small towns as well. And I have a young trans or she's like 15 or 16 now, but dad really struggled with, and they're from a smaller town, struggled with his daughter's gender identity because to dad, when that young person was born, he was the, or she was the oldest child assigned male at birth. Dad is kind of a a fitness sports buff. And in his mind, that child was going to be the star football player. And that is not where that daughter's journey is going right now. And so I felt like I had to do family therapy that day, but that's what I told that dad is I said, look, you totally have the space to grieve the loss of your son. And it may not, it's not the like permanent loss, but you've lost the thought that you had for that child. However, part of that grieving process is then acknowledging all of the hopes and same dreams you had for your son that you can for your daughter. And it may not be that she's going to be the star football player, but she could go on to do great things and make you really proud. And so we do have to acknowledge that grieving process for our parents, because if you just steamroll right over it, it's not doing you any justice. So I think that you brought up a great point that we have to give parents, whether it's sexual orientation or gender identity, time to grieve for the future that they thought their mm-hmm. child was going mm-hmm. to have. It's like when one door closes, the, another one opens, but we spend so much time looking at the closed door that we don't, we don't see the open door. And I, and I think you're, you're, you're also bringing up a, a great point in that as these, these youths are going through their journeys, they're still youths and they're still needing their parents. And I think parenting may look a little bit different and, and change a, a, a little bit, um, but they still need guidance. Like they, they still encounter some of the same challenges, if not even more so now. Um, and especially some of the concerns surrounding the risks that we, we, we don't even know about. But I, th- I think the, 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 the reality of it is um, 
like these youths exist like I think the Williams Institute estimate that about 0.7% of the U.S. population identify as transgender. So we're talking about like roughly 1.4 or 1.5 million people in the U.S. So they're here, they're, 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 they're real. And the question is then, if you want to be a part of that life, like if you want to be a part of your children's livelihood and hopefully adulthood, um, what are some of the ways in which you can support them? And I find that, uh, thankfully, it, it seems like more and more parents are willing, um, just by virtue of, of, of it being more in the news, more in social media, and more recognized as a, a valid identity. But I think part of what our roles what we can do as physicians is oftentimes that we view as authority figures is just to reinforce that. It's like, this is, this is a valid identity. This is a valid way of life. And how can we make their lives easier, not harder? I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. For more American Medical Association events and other AMA member-only benefits, join the AMA at ama-assn.org slash join. Thank you for listening.